Welcome to the Outperform Cancer Podcast, where we identify anti-cancer strategies found in peer-reviewed scientific research. My name is Mary Beth Gilliam, and I'm a metastatic breast cancer patient on a quest to find ways to outperform cancer because, quite frankly, I don't like the odds I was given. In each episode, we'll talk to a well-regarded published researcher who has focused their work on a potential anti-cancer strategy that could be used with conventional treatment. In the past decade, phytochemicals have become a major target of interest in cancer research. Today, we're discussing sulforaphane, a powerful phytochemical found in broccoli. Research has shown that sulforaphane has both chemopreventative and anti-cancer properties, meaning it can both prevent cancer from starting and kill it if it already exists. Studies have been conducted against cancer types such as breast, ovarian, prostate, colon, lung, pancreatic, gastric, and even leukemia. These claims have been supported in a number of research studies, and even Memorial Sloan Kettering writes that sulforaphane has demonstrated anti-cancer effects for prostate, breast, and urinary cancers. But there's something even more special about the phytochemical sulforaphane. An article from this year, January 2023, in Frontiers in Oncology, titled Sulforaphane, an emergent anti-cancer stem cell agent provides a summary of recent research with a special emphasis on its anti-cancer stem cell properties. Now, cancer stem cells are not the same as cancer cells. Cancer stem cells are usually slow growing and can hide in the microvasculature and be dormant for long periods of time. Researchers think they may be responsible for a significant portion of cancer recurrence and metastasis. In addition, since they're slow growing, chemotherapy usually doesn't kill them because chemotherapy targets fast dividing cells. So research suggesting that sulforaphane may target cancer stem cells is a pretty big deal. And while there's an escalating number of new research papers being published on sulforaphane in cancer, it's important to know that its effects on cancer has been studied since the early 1990s, when researchers at Johns Hopkins discovered the cancer-fighting properties of sulforaphane. So today, I'm bringing you the founder and former leader of the Coleman Chemoprotection Center at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Jed Fahey. Dr. Fahey is at the forefront of understanding the nuanced interplay between nutrition, plants, and their therapeutic implications in cancer. He's a renowned scientist whose work has paved the way in understanding the beneficial properties of phytochemicals. His research on sulforaphane has garnered attention worldwide, shedding light on its potential cancer preventative properties. Beyond the lab, Dr. Fahey's multidisciplinary approach, drawing from plant physiology, human nutrition, and clinical research, has set the gold standard in translational science. So whether you're a researcher, a health enthusiast, or someone touched by cancer, 
Today's conversation promises to be both enlightening and hopeful. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Jed Fahey. Well, thank you for having me, Mary Beth. I'm delighted to be able to uh, hopefully help uh, people who are interested in cancer prevention and or treatment uh, uh, understand a little bit more about what's going on with some of our favorite approaches. And I should mention, I'm not a physician and I uh, uh, I am not giving, not attempting to give any specific medical advice to anybody. Um, standard caveat, you should talk to your own doctor. If you have cancer, your oncologist, but hopefully we can, we can provide some helpful, uh, helpful hints. I will refer to phytochemicals uh, off and on probably throughout this talk. Um, and it's important to realize that when we talk about eating a plant-forward diet or a Mediterranean diet, or we talk about eating vegetarian or vegan for that matter, we're talking about eating these things, right? Uh, all of the vegetables and fruit that you're familiar with and then some. Um, what makes them unique and different from each other? Well, obviously genetics and environment and all that stuff, but what makes them so look so different is primarily phytochemicals. Um, so all plants, humans for that matter too, are made up mostly of water, carbohydrates, in the case of plants, fiber, mm -hmm. protein, and fat, with a handful of vitamins and a handful of minerals thrown in. We're all made of that, except we don't have that, we don't have fiber as our as our being. So we're talking about plants. Uh, the fiber gives them structure, gives them form. Um, the, the phytochemicals give them their colors, their flavors, their scents. It gives them everything that makes them unique. Um, and, uh, you know, you think about pigments, natural pigments. They all get extracted from things like grapes or blackberries or, uh, you know, curcumin or ginger. Um, so at any rate, phytochemicals are everything that you don't usually think about when you think about eating. They're everything that's not on the nutrition facts panel on the back, which requires carbs, proteins, fats, um, and what else? Fiber, vitamins. Um, and these compounds are present in very small amounts in plants. They are less than 1% of the, of the mass of the plant tissue, far less in many cases, way, way less. Yet they're so potent, they give these this appearance. And I've spent the last quarter century plus looking in detail at some of these phytochemicals for the way that our bodies, we as mammals, as humans, can sort of commandeer them and use them to our benefit. Because after all, we would we wouldn't be alive if we didn't eat if we didn't eat plants. Some of us have migrated. Uh, I leave myself out of this, but some of us have migrated to eating a lot of meat. Um, when you're eating a lot of meat, you're still eating something that ultimately ate plants, uh, even if it was a trophic level ago or so. Mm -hmm. So these plants are absolutely at the base of all life. Um, so we're all eating phytochemicals. Um, if we're not careful, we can be eating toxins also. They're obviously plants we don't want to eat, but we've focused on edible plants and some of the compounds in them. And particularly, we've focused on broccoli, shown here in the upper right, 
and I need to tell you why. <laughs> so um, we started looking at uh, cancer prevention. Actually, my predecessor, my, my mentor, uh, boss, if you will, uh, when he hired me at Johns Hopkins in 1993, had made some uh, pretty exciting discoveries uh, showing that a compound in broccoli called sulforaphane Spell, sound spelled like it sounds or sounding like it's spelled sulforaphane um, had some potent cancer prevention activities in in the test tube in vitro and in animal models um, and so we then started when I came into the group we then started looking at some of the other closely related plants cruciferous vegetables they're called or brassica vegetables or coal crops and Here's broccoli down in the lower right and broccoli sprouts, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but amongst this family of cruciferous vegetables are all sorts of things that you're familiar with if you ever go to the grocery store or if you eat anything but meat and potatoes, things like arugula, the so-called uh, Chinese vegetables uh, or Asian vegetables, mustard greens, uh, rutabaga, Chinese cabbage, collards, turnip, uh, canola. I mean, these are things that are, aren't eaten, aren't as popular in this country, but are very, very popular in Asia. Daikon, radish, and certainly in Asia, very popular. Uh, red radish, nasturtium, and watercress. Um, and then more closely related to broccoli are cauliflower, cabbage, and Brussels sprouts, which you certainly find in supermarkets. So it turns out that all of these plants have a class of phytochemical that's closely related to uh, sulforaphane and broccoli. And they and actually they all have some activity in cancer prevention in vitro, but the only plant on which uh, really a substantial amount of clinical work has been done with people studies is broccoli. Um, we like to think we had some part in that because uh, of the Paul's Talley's discovery of sulforaphane and broccoli originally, and then all the work that we did following that, we developed broccoli sprouts, which are just you know, three-day-old sprouted broccoli seeds as a more potent source of this compound sulforaphane um, and tried to promote them. But, you know, Americans, uh, and I'm speaking from the great state of Maine, uh, but certainly people in Maine and all over America don't do sprouts very much. Some yeah. few people do. Yeah. Um, so it turns out they were more potent source of, of this compound. Yeah. And I want to just, oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Hay. I, go ahead. Please call me Jed, Mary Beth. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Jed. I want to just uh, reiterate something that you were saying, I think is very important. So it sounds like not all cruciferous vegetables are equal when it comes to sulforaphane. Absolutely true. And, and the popular press, self-anointed, self-appointed nutrition experts who don't know what they're talking about, have, said, have repeated over and over again the concept that all cruciferous vegetables have sulforaphane. It ain't true. Um, and, and I say that as someone who has studied all cruciferous vegetables, or almost all of them. It turns out that there is a little bit of sulforaphane in um, 
some purple kales and in some cauliflowers. And there is in this uh, sort of lab rat of, of the plant world, Arabidopsis. Um, so you, yes, you can find traces of it in other plants, some other cruciferous vegetables. But by and large, it's safe to say that of edible plants, um, broccoli is the place to go for sulforaphane. Now, I just said a few a minute ago that, yeah, there are related compounds in that this whole family. So absolutely recommendations that you should eat cruciferous vegetables and make them a part of your diet are appropriate. Um, and there's one plant, edible plant, a very important plant that's not on here because it's not strictly a crucifer. It's not related directly to the cruciferous vegetables. And that's called Moringa or Moringa oleifera or the miracle tree or the horseradish tree. This is a tree with leaves that are very edible that grows throughout the tropics. And um, I've seen it grown, growing, uh, cultivated for that matter in the Philippines and in Ghana. It's all over West Africa, parts of East Africa, certainly through the, uh, the, the, the um, uh, Philippines and Indonesia and uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and then it's in South America so, and, and in Mexico. Um, so it's all over. It's particularly appropriate for people in tropical settings. It's much more difficult to import it here, although uh, full disclosure, I actually consult for a company called Cooley Cooley that brings dried Moringa leaf powder into the U.S. and, and, and sells it. Um, but I mention this because the isothiocyanate that's the broad class of compounds that sulforaphane is related to in Moringa is equipotent or about as potent as sulforaphane in many studies and many assays. Um, so I regard it as sort of its, its twin sister from a functional perspective. That's interesting. Um, because I, yeah. I know that you were saying too earlier that... Um, broccoli sprouts have significantly more sulforaphane than broccoli. Can you speak to that? Like how much more sulforaphane and, and why is that important? Yeah, I, I you're, you're a good uh, straight man, so to speak. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the precursor of sulforaphane, which is this molecule. Mm -hmm. It is a compound called glucoraphanin. And that's what's found in the plant. Um, so there's very little actual sulforaphane in the plant because what happens is, go back to thinking about what the plant is confronted with. Plant can't run away from predators. The plant can't bite predators back. You could argue carnivorous plants might, um, but by and large, um, their defenses are pretty much restricted to what they can do while they're in place. And one of the things they've done is to develop an extraordinary armamentarium of phytochemicals. By estimates of my friends at Brightseed Bio in California, the number is well north of a million phytochemicals in the plant world, probably more like wow. 5 million or more. Wow. And so, yeah, so plants develop these phytochemicals. I could have mentioned that when we started talking about them. But um, in this case, and this is somewhat unique in the plant kingdom. Well, well, it, it's unusual, but not unique, I guess. They have a precursor that's stored in vacuoles, little bags in the plant cells. 
And when an insect chomps on the leaf, for example, it releases an enzyme, happens to be called myrosinase. That enzyme acts very quickly, releases a sugar. Um, there's a rearrangement. It releases sulfuric acid um, and, the, and, and sulforaphane. And so it turns out, I've got written down here, so glucoraphanin is very water-soluble. It occurs in these liquid vacuoles. It's heat-stable, and it's non-reactive. So it's like it's, a, it's a loading the ammunition. Um, sulforaphane aggravates the heck out of a lot of insects. It makes them go away. It's a feeding deterrent. It's also not very water-soluble. It's heat-sensitive, and it's reactive, so it doesn't stay around long. So the plant couldn't have a compound like this sitting in its cells and uh, not have it disappear or screw the cells up. So it turns out insects do this when they chew cell to the leaves, for example, or any parts of plants that have this, this setup. Um, uh, fungi do it when they start creeping through the leaves and bacteria when they start rotting it. And what do you know, mammals do it when they chew on fresh vegetables. But if they, if they, and I'm getting to your question, Mary Beth, but, sorry, but when they chew on fresh vegetables, when they chew on vegetables, that's what happens. But what about when the plant's cooked? So when you cook broccoli, for example, this enzyme, which is a protein, gets denatured, just like frying an egg when the liquid, liquid white of the egg turns, uh, turns opaque. So the protein gets wrecked, it becomes non-functional, and then we depend on our gut microflora, um, the bacteria in our gut, primarily our large intestine, to do this conversion. And everybody's gut microflora contains myrosinase-like activity. Some of the bacteria in there have it. We've proven this, others have proven it since we did, uh, or re-proven it. Um, and uh, we won't get into the details, but that's, that's what happens. So most of uh, the most um, effective delivery of sulforaphane is actually to deliver glucoraphanin. And yes, there is some issue of bioavailability and how much is converted. I could spend a whole three hours talking about that. But let me go back to Mary Beth's question. And that's what's a reasonable dose or how much do we get? So but I, I should I should tell the whole story. But I was bringing market stage broccoli heads from the field in Maryland into the hospital elevator at Johns Hopkins. My lab was on the 13th floor, had coolers full of stinky broccoli and dirty boots. I was not, I was, my technicians and I were not highly regarded in that hospital. Um, and, and when the winter came, we obviously couldn't bring in broccoli heads from the field, and we, were, we weren't as interested in looking at supermarket broccoli for a number of reasons I can talk about later. But so we started growing our own broccoli in, in uh, growth chambers on the 13th floor of the hospital in East Baltimore. And since we had them, why not look at the potency of seeds? And they were off the charts. They were, you can see, hundreds of times more potent than broccoli heads. So we decided, so we were growing the sprouts in a sterile, in sterile conditions to try to get the plants to grow as long as possible. We started looking at the sprouts. They too had very high levels of glucoraphanin. 
20 to 50 uh, times higher than that of market stage heads. Um, so that's, that's the short answer to your question. So the epidemiologic literature, starting with bladder cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, 25, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the epidemiology was saying, you know what, if you eat a couple of servings of broccoli a day, your risk of colorectal cancer, for example, goes down by 50%, half the risk. Wow. This That's was a study wild. in 19, yeah, this is a study in 1975 or 78, I forgot, Graham was the author. I can provide any of these references to Mary Beth for the, uh, for the her website. Um, so, and, and similar things have been shown with with breast cancer and broccoli. Um, as I say, prostate, um, bladder, and, and a number of other actually cancers. So, if two servings a day, you know, roughly two cups or a couple of hundred grams, depending on whose recommendations of what a serving size is you follow um, can have that effect. One of our thoughts was, wow, you know, if you can eat so much less broccoli sprouts and get the same effect, um, or, or for that matter, eat the same weight of broccoli sprouts and have an even more pronounced effect, wouldn't that be cool? Um, we said that scientifically in some grant applications and uh, not, wouldn't that be cool? But and and wound up starting to look at uh, uh, really the chemoprotective potency of broccoli sprouts. So, Mary Mary Beth, I know you want um, practical advice for listeners too. Yes. So one to two ounces of broccoli sprouts is is equivalent to eating you know a couple of servings a day of market stage broccoli, and one to two ounces for those of you who buy them in the grocery store. You're familiar, they come in these clamshell packs usually, which are three or four ounces. So about a half of one of those packs is a reasonable dose of broccoli sprouts. If you want to use the word dose, I don't like using it because dose makes one think of pharma and drugs. It's right. a food, but it's a reasonable serving. A reasonable serving. So uh, about that would translate to about a cup about a cup of broccoli sprouts per day would be a right. serving of sulforaphane, which right. would then correlate to some research that had been done about getting those efficacious benefits. So you had mentioned earlier uh, about heat and the impact of heat on, on um, glucoraphanin or sulforaphane. I've... Well, on my Morosinase, the, the thing that converts one to the other. Okay, yeah. on the enzyme morosinase. So if someone was did want to eat a full market stage head of broccoli and they cooked it, does that have an influence uh, on the sulforaphane content? How does that work? If you cook it, even if, if you microwave it lightly, you probably won't kill all the myrosinase or inactivate it if you if you cook it the way most of us would say you know microwaving it for or steaming it for enough to make it not as as hard and crunchy um yes you'll 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 knock out the myrosinase activity and then you will be counting on your gut microflora to do the conversion and so bioavailability will be 
lower of sulforaphane will be lower than if you had eaten raw broccoli heads. But remember, most of this epidemiology comes from eating cooked broccoli. I mean, they do they talk about portion size and they stratify you know large numbers of people by the amount of broccoli they eat. Almost all of those people eat it cooked or other cruciferous vegetables. It's almost all cooked. The one exception is a study that a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Li Tang, did uh, at Brazil Park Cancer Institute, um, I don't know, in the last decade. And she actually parsed or separated people, uh, people's consumption of raw, uncooked broccoli and uh, of cooked and found that with breast cancer prevention, there was a greater effect of the same amount of raw broccoli than, than cooked. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing her study. I don't have it in front of me, but um, so yeah, the, the delivery system uh, delivers more if it's raw, but all the epidemiology that says there's an effect of cruciferous vegetables is really based on cooked, cooked things. So mm -hmm. there, let me just point out, there are two other ways to, to get at this or two other, we talked about bu buying fresh sprouts from the grocery store, fresh broccoli sprouts. Um, I would actually recommend, especially for people who are immune compromised or very old or very young, to grow your own sprouts. And it's incredibly easy to do. It doesn't take much effort. It takes next to no equipment except a ball jar and a screen and a little bleach to sterilize the seeds, surface sterilize the seeds, clean them, um, and a little patience. You wait three days. Um, I've got various uh, online guides to sprouting. I can provide links to them. Um, and, and I say that because if you clean your seeds and grow your own sprouts, as long as you don't have you know, your kids sneezing in them or something when they're growing, they're going to be safe and clean and healthy. A lot of the sprouts that one finds at a grocery store look awful. They're rotted, they're slimy, yeah. they're nasty looking. They I yeah. agree. So, um, so one thing you can do is grow your own sprouts. Another thing you can do is take a supplement. There are a lot of supplements, and um, most of them, and certainly the ones I would recommend, are supplements that include that are that have glucoraphanin in them. And most of the dietary supplements are calibrated to have an amount that's, you know, equivalent to a, about a serving of broccoli. Um, they are certainly safe. Uh, they're not contaminated. Um, they are, some of them have been studied. The, the, the science behind them has been, well, the, the effects of those supplements themselves has been studied as opposed to like making an equivalence between the amount of glucoraphanin in them and the amount of glucoraphanin in a head of broccoli. But, um, and all of them have dose recommendations on them that are, uh, conservative, I'd say. Uh, I mean, I think some 15 or 30 milligrams of glucoraphanin in a, in a gel cap is, is sort of this, I won't say the standard, but what a lot of the supplements ha recommend. I actually take 300 milligrams of glucoraphanin. Uh, sorry, I, well, I take a gram of a powder containing glucoraphanin. So um, I take a lot. I take a... <laughs> I, I, and I also eat a very cruciferous vegetable rich diet. Mm -hmm. um, 
So yeah, you can get the get these in supplements. There are a few supplements that on the market that say they provide sulforaphane. Don't believe them or really do your homework. A lot of them are lying. A lot of them may have had supplement when the supplements were made, but it's gone, you know, it, it's highly reactive. It's gone, it's it's reacted by the time you eat it. Um, so I would certainly buy something that's glucoraphanin rich for the so where would the cancer patient go to find, um, you know, one that features glucoraphanin? Uh, how can they, how can they be sure that they're getting a supplement that is a high quality and that will have a benefit for them? I think there's a lot of trouble in this area where um, patients have spent a lot of money on things that, that won't work. Um, so how can we ensure that, that it's something of high quality? In the FAQ portion of my website, which I hope you would post the link to, yes. um, I, I have answered that question and I have some recommendations. And um, I, I have to say, one of the things that Paul Talley and I did uh, when we made these discoveries back in the 90s is we started a, a company called Brassica Protection Products and we were growing broccoli sprouts. And we eventually had, and we formed this company with his son who still runs it. Um, uh, we wound up having to get out of broccoli sprout production because there were foodborne illnesses. There were concerns about them um, because sprouts sitting in the grocery store and sprouts grown by various commercial entities have had some issues. Never in broccoli sprouts, but alfalfa sprouts and daikon sprouts um, have been the source of some foodborne contamination. So the company pivoted to producing a supplement uh, made uh, uh, to producing glucoraphanin, I should say, um, highly controlled, highly standardized, and they sell to the supplement industry. I had actually, Paul and I had backed away from the company. We were doing clinical trials. We divested ourselves of any involvement in the company for a decade and a half or so. But when I retired, uh, so for the last three years, I've been consulting for them again. And I know because I've tested the raw ingredient and the final products, I, 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 there are three supplements that I'd recommend because I've tested them rigorously. There are more in which their product, their glucoraphanin concentrate goes. But the three that I'm, you know, that are easily available to consumers are, are from Thorn, uh, the products called Crucera SGS, I think, from Zymogen. And that product is called, uh-oh, I forgot, but it's it's linked on my website. Okay. And, and uh, from Nutramax, and their product is called Avmacol. Um, so those are just, again, those are just three. There are many more that I could recommend. There are many more that I know have a high quality ingredient in it um, and that don't make bogus claims about, you know, sulforaphane. It's fine to say this supplement will generate sulforaphane in the body, but isn't, uh, that's not what a lot of people say. Um, it's also, it's interesting. It's a little bit of a diversion, but supplement companies have of course some restrictions on them not that many but um <laughs> they can put things on the market and uh 
it's only when they start killing people and causing damage and injury that they get yanked from the market. Um, they can get challenged by the FDA if they, uh, when inspected, when their factories inspected, if there are food safety issues. So there are some checks and balances, but in terms of claims, they, they can only make very sort of loose, wishy-washy claims about structure and function, you know, supports a healthy immune system, supports a healthy bladder, uh, you know, they cannot make claims about cancer and they don't, most of them are pretty good about that. Although a few of them that hopefully are no longer on the market have said, you know, cures cancer. So, mm -hmm. um, the restrictions that are put on them are are really more in terms of labeling what they can say. Um, when you think about food, though, how you know how do people make claims about food? They really they don't. I mean, they go to places like the American Institute for Cancer Research and they read their recommendations, maybe, or they listen to television doctors and yeah. um, you know, at, um, I, I've long advocated that that there should be just like those little annoying stickers on the sides of apples and some, you know, pears and peaches. Yeah. I think there should be, there should be a QR code on them that not only tells you what variety it is, but gives you an idea of, or a place to look for the levels of certain phytochemicals um, in those lots when possible. Um, well, that's like not that. going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love it. It's not going to happen for, and certainly for a while, but um so, so at any rate, and then, um, so we've talked about, we've talked about whole, you know, sort of whole foods and supplements in terms of sprouts. Um, you know, I've seen some claims, I've seen some references to a Johns Hopkins university patent and even the title of it, which I was an author of, and it implies that Johns Hopkins university endorses its cancer preventive properties. I'm going to stay far away from that one. Yes, I wrote the patent. Yes, I worked at Johns Hopkins. Yes, I'm proud that our research is cited. But, um, you know, the way marketers associate claims with um, uh, with efficacy is something for someone else to talk to you about. It'd be a fascinating discussion. But, um, but anyway. But I think you bring up something which is at the heart of our conversation, which is what what do cancer patients do with this information like we just talked about what a serving size looks like and you referenced uh some um studies that had been done where they had shown some uh the chemo preventive nature of sulforaphane um but i think you have some more information about more studies that have been done uh, and the richness of all of these studies seems to indicate that cancer patients should be taking notice. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, in healthcare, every person is different. Every body is different. We all react differently to different things, whether that's taking an aspirin or eating broccoli sprouts or, or anything. Uh, we're all unique and our, our biology is all somewhat unique. But as a group of people, representing a group of people uh, that I am of cancer patients, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about 
research that has been done and um, help us understand what to make of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, I, 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 I do have some. Uh, I've got some slides that uh, that will that will get us into that uh, discussion. And I, and I, you know, to answer the first part of your question, what do cancer patients do? How do they get the information? I, I, I do think that the AICR American Institute for Cancer Research is is a good resource, and there are plenty of other good resources. Um, no, one of the reasons I retired from the active faculty at Johns Hopkins three years ago um, was to be able to spend some time trying to get the 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 truth the truth out, trying to get the good the word out um, in just the sort of venue that we're doing. So I think people, I think good podcasts are very important, and I applaud you for uh, starting uh, starting your series and 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 doing what you're doing and. I hope you'll invite me back to finish the story because there's no way we'll get through it in in, in an hour or whatever yeah. time we have. So mechanisms. So yeah. we talked about sulforaphane without a lot of facts. You sort of, if if you're still with us at this point, you believed that, I believe that there are various important mechanisms by which it functions. This graphic, which we published a couple of years ago, um, can keep growing. I mean, there are arrows and connections that can keep being made. There's effects on wound response, blood vessel dilation, cell cycle arrest and apoptosis or programmed cell death, uh, an indirect antioxidant effect, anti-inflammatory immune response activation, detoxification, detoxication of AGEs, advanced glycation end products and food, mitochondrial support, and then this NRF2 keep one mediated response. It's all alphabet soup to those of you who aren't scientists, but I will talk in the, uh, as we go on about this NRF2 pathway. This is a very key response um, of the bodies. It, it, um, and it's responsible for the cytoprotective or the cell protective uh, activity um, that sulforaphane triggers. Um, and the antioxidant activity that it triggers. And we'll talk much more about that in a second. But many of us have focused on this NRF2 response. It's a nuclear transcription factor, which again, I'll talk about, I have a slide to talk about that. But while we're looking at this huge alphabet soup, I do want to move down to the bottom and say, you know, I have, although we started looking at cancer prevention back in the 90s and the early 2000s, a lot of my work has focused more on neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental conditions um, for which sulforaphane clearly um, can be beneficial. And we're talking about things like, uh, like uh, autism, done a number of studies on that, schizophrenia, um, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, and so on. Um, the bar above that shows um, the cancer effects, uh, inhibition of tumor initiation, promotion, progression, and metastasis. And so uh, again, apologies to those who are only listening, but we've got that bar asterisked and we have a, a long list of, I don't know, 20 or 20 or so molecular pathways that have been shown to be impacted by sulforaphane in animal models, in cell culture, 
And in some cases, it's been borne out in human clinical studies. So since that's the thrust of Mary Beth's uh, interest and, and, and certainly what she asked me to do on this podcast, let's, uh, you can take my word for it or I can send you papers that substantiate this, but there are a hell of a lot of pathways yeah. directly related to either the start of cancer or its metastasis, progression and metastasis that um, are impacted by sulforaphane. Does that mean right. it cures? No. Does that mean it prevents? I, yeah, it depends on what level of proof you need. In many cases, it ought to be preventive. But doing an, a dietary prevention or any cancer prevention trial in an otherwise healthy human population is next to, excuse me, next to impossible. <clears throat> and I'm starting to lose my voice. So excuse me, I'm going to take a That's lozenge. okay. I'll ask a question in the meantime. Um, Good, so I look at this page and I say, okay, great. What I see is sulforaphane has many different mechanisms of action that then all these pathways that lead to ultimately good stuff. I'm going to call it good stuff, good stuff for um, anti-cancer, good stuff, and also good stuff for neurodegenerative, uh, neurodevelopmental uh, conditions. On the cancer side, um, we see inhibition of tumor initiation and promotion. So inhibition, so we're trying to prevent the, the cancer from ever even starting, right? The prevention part of it, which is terrific, just, uh, you know, hopefully many people catch it before uh, so that they don't even have to deal with cancer. But for those of us who have cancer, I also see um, pathways that should help uh, help um, minimize or negatively impact progression of cancer and metastasis of cancer. And that's, of course, incredibly important to cancer patients. Is this something that is going to help my body to avoid recurrence, even if I've gotten to this position where I, I have had cancer or I do have cancer, and metastasis? So meaning even for cancer patients who are metastatic, meaning the cancer has traveled to other parts of the body. Um, it looks like from this chart that sulforaphane is impacting the pathways that would then also limit further metastasis. So am I understanding that correctly? Is that is that what we're seeing here? Because that is very exciting. Yes, it is what it is what you're seeing. And yes, it is very exciting. And we can there's something we need to talk about later. Now's probably not the best time to talk about it. And that's that, um, you know, as I pointed out, many of these pathways are sort of direct acting and unequivocal. It, they're unequivocal in their um, uh, beneficial effects. For instance, the anti-helicobacter uh, uh, point. Um, this NRF2 pathway can be a, a double-edged sword for people that have tumors. And again, I'd like to talk about that. I have a number of slides that discusses okay. discuss that, but one has to bear in mind that, that 
we're looking at the whole body and the whole system. So even, <clears throat> even though there may be some downside or some potential risk um, to upregulating the NRF2 response to people that have actively growing tumors, whether you know it or not, you know, um, there are also many benefits. What NRF2 does is it's a nuclear transcription factor. So it's hanging out in the cell it winds up going to the nucleus of the cell once sulforaphane activates the process. Again, a lot of details that aren't necessary here. Um, then um, it activates, it, it, it causes the transcription of a whole series of genes, uh, activation of a whole series of genes that make proteins in your body. And so ultimately it's responsible for two to 5% of the total cellular protein uh, transcription or something north of 250 proteins. Among these are a whole slew of uh, very many cellular protective enzymes, antioxidant enzymes. And I say that because I want people to understand a little better a word that has been used for decades now that people still don't really understand. And this is word antioxidant. The, the yeah. supplement industry used to use the word antioxidant willy-nilly and everything was an antioxidant and therefore you should take it. Um, so, but sulforaphane is not an, a direct antioxidant. It doesn't act the way vitamin C does. Um, and it's maybe a subtle difference, but what happens is it upregulates a whole bunch of antioxidant enzymes or proteins. Sulforaphane does not directly quench, oh, sorry, does not directly quench or inhibit oxidation since it does not have what chemists call redox activity. Rather, it increases many direct antioxidants that in turn protect cells from oxidative stress. If you look at... Uh, what happens to sulforaphane in the blood and the urine? It peaks in a couple of hours. This is a logarithmic scale. So this is like a huge peak. And then it disappears from the blood and urine from the body within eight hours, certainly by the end of 24 hours. If you look at on the right side, vitamin C, it does exactly the same thing. Again, this is someone else's data, but we're talking about a couple, three hours, and by eight hours, it's mostly gone. Mm -hmm. So oh, I showed the graphic where I showed you how sulforaphane works on NRF2 and how it upregulates antioxidant enzymes. It's critical to remember that those enzymes stick around for a while and do their thing for a while in the body. So it's not necessary to have sulforaphane on board all the time meaning you can eat it, you can take it once a day as sprouts or supplement or whatever, or once every couple of days, probably once every three days. Um, and, and Mary Beth, here's a very complex slide, but this is showing some of the classes of protective uh, and metabolic enzymes that are upregulated by NRF2 and their half-lives, meaning how long they stick around and do their thing in the body. And just, you know, squinting at this long column of numbers, something like 48 hours is a reasonable, a, a reasonable estimate of 
how long half of the enzymes are going to still be cranking away. Um, so um, anyway, this has been, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I was just going to um, recap. So if a cancer patient, for example, was deciding to eat a, uh, deciding to eat some broccoli sprouts and they ate a cup of broccoli sprouts um, at any point of time during the day, they would have a, a big spike in the first couple of hours of sulforaphane within their system. That would taper off after about eight hours. So if you had it at lunch by the end of your day, it's starting to taper off. But what's happening is uh, in your body, it's, it's triggering the enzymes that have a much longer um, lifespan. So, you, that, so you're still getting the benefit of that for about 48 hours. So if you ate um, a serving, a one cup serving of broccoli sprouts every other day or every couple days, then you would still be maintaining a pretty high level of sulforaphane that could still be working actively to help you in your body. Is that correct? It, absolutely correct. And it's a much better way of looking at it than the way I said it. But, you know, if you try, try to make analogies to other things that we're familiar with, you know, it's like getting a cold car and start it up and go for a ride and come back and leave it. It's still going to be hot for a number of hours. If you go out and go up and down, uh, you know, a number of flights of stairs and then come back and sit down, your metabolism is still cranked up for a while until you cool down and, and the benefits have been shown to last for many hours. Same thing here, you're, you're revving up a system, a protective system, and, 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 and that activity tapers off quite slowly over time. Um, so you don't have to have the, if you regard sulforaphane as a drug, and I don't, I hate that to use that terminology, but if you right. do, you don't have to have the drug on board all the time. You don't have to be dosing three times a day or mm -hmm. intravenously. You yeah. know. So this is uh, looks like a uh, research study that you're going to tell us a little bit about, which I'm really excited because I I think uh, there has been so much research in this area, and cancer patients are very interested in better understanding what we know and what we don't know. Uh, and personally, I feel like um, I'm, as long as I understand where the, what the, as long as I understand the study and what they were trying to do and, and how they were doing it, um, then I'm comfortable personally with being able to evaluate whether that has a you know, is applicable to to my situation and what I might want to do as a as a uh, as a result of of their finding. So um, it would be great if you could take us through a little bit of the research that's been out there on on cancer and uh, particularly breast cancer. Yeah. Um, so uh, and there's a lot of it, and and you know I, I should. Just again, sort of try to anticipate a question you may have. Um, a lot of times when you go, to, I mean, there are a lot of great doctors out there, physicians. A lot of times when you go to your physician and you ask about dietary recommendations, they get a blank look or they 
they pull a, a tired old trope out of their out of their proverbial pocket and say, well, you should eat a healthy diet or you should eat more fruit and vegetables. <laughs> That's great. Um, but what are the specifics, Doc? So one right. thing that you could do, and I, I, you know, it's it's anybody's guess how many of them will actually follow through. But if you have papers, um, maybe even hard copies or, 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 you know, that, that um, sort of support what you're asking them about and, and get, you know, give them to them, let them know you're going to check on my chart or whatever your portal is and, and ask what they think of this recommendation. I, um, I think, I think that can be somewhat helpful because remember most uh, there have been many things written about this. There is next to no nutrition training in a medical school curriculum. And most physicians don't know squat about medical use of foods. Um, there's a push to put some of that into the medical school curricula and some schools are adding a course, but uh, many physicians I've talked to, even fairly young ones that have been through medical school recently, talk about maybe getting 10, 10 hours or 20 hours of a sort of introduction to human nutrition yeah. Um, and, and it's just, it, it's insufficient to, obviously they can't know all this literature, but if you put it in their face, they, again, the good ones or the ones that care may, may pay attention and then be able to react when you say, doc, you know, this character on Mary Beth's podcast said I should eat more <laughs> broccoli sprouts or, or take a supplement with glucoraphanin. Um, if you give them you know something in their language that they can that they can check on or relate to uh, yeah. that they may yeah they may become a supporter oh, anyway. my doctors are used to my files that i bring in every... <laughs> but thank you so please continue tell us a little bit about yeah. what you found yeah so i mean there there's a lot of work on cancer stem cells and 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 uh related to that this is actually it's a paper uh, recent paper uh, talking about breast cancer prevention. The title is Breast Cancer Prevention. Is there a future for sulforaphane and its analogs? Um, and again, we'll post all these links. But um, this, for example, uh, starts to, does talk about cancer stem cells, which I'll def define in a minute. But um, it's showing, for example, that sulforaphane has an effect in uh, mechanisms of its effects in breast cancer tissue. So we're not looking at all cancers now. Um, first on detoxifying enzymes, this is the NRF2 response that I talked about. Um, but look at all these others. So yeah. HDAC, this is, um, uh, um, this is a uh, um, um, epigenetic play. This is a masking or unmasking uh, genes so that they can be read or not, turning them on or off. Carcinogen activating enzymes; those are those are by and large re repressed or deep, uh, de uh, yeah, repressed. Cell cycle arrest is in enhanced. This is important and it relates to actually stem cells, but um, sulforaphane has an interesting phenomenon whereby it can actually uh, selectively enhance the arrest of cell cycle, in other words, stop them from dividing, of cancer cells versus normal cells. 
So this preferential effect is fascinating. It has to do with the, the, the biology of the cancer cell phenotype uh, compared to a normal cell. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of these effects actually can be related to the speed of growth. Cancer cells' objective, main objective in life, is to is to grow fast and overtake the organism, as opposed to most of the rest of our somatic cells, which just hang around and replenish themselves slowly. Um, so, cell proliferation inhibits cancer cell proliferation, upregulates autophagy or this is programmed cell death this is a this is not taking a cell and smashing on the head with a hammer this is a whole mechanism by which cells terminate their existence when they when they get um, not so useful for the organism one one would imagine but um, this process is upregulated uh, um, uh, sorry I'm, I'm talking about apoptosis autophagy is the 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 the, the chewing up of the of the parts of cells, and then inhibition of cancer cancer stem cells, which is what you asked me to start talking about. Yeah. So, uh, so just to recap, that was pretty amazing stuff. So, uh, a cancer. I when I first was diagnosed with cancer, I had no idea that there was any difference between a cancer stem cell and a cancer cell. And I was shocked to learn uh, a little bit about that and the fact that um, most chemotherapy doesn't kill cancer stem cells because cancer stem cells are different and they're slower growing and they can hide in the microvasculature. Um, whereas the regular old cancer cell is fast growing and that's what the chemotherapy targets. So there's it was a very new concept to me that a cancer stem cell even exists um, yep. But based on what your chart was saying, there is that there is a, a lot of activity um, against these cancer stem cells and uh, cancer cells that are very exciting. We've got a couple of papers to highlight for you here. One, this one's called um, their title is "The Big Five Phytochemicals Targeting Cancer Stem Cells: Curcumin, EGCG, Sulforaphane, Resveratrol, and Genistein." <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, these are probably names you're familiar with if you've uh, read any of the nutritional literature, but they're all phytochemicals present in small amounts in various plants. And to quote from the abstract of this paper, cancer stem cells constitute a subpopulation of tumor cells that possess self-renewal and tumor initiation capacity and blah, blah, blah. I won't read the whole thing. But we'll post it. Cancer stem cells exhibit intrinsic mechanisms of resistance to virtually all conventional cancer therapeutics, allowing them to survive current cancer therapies and to initiate tumor recurrence and metastasis. Different pathways and mechanisms that confer resistance and survival on cancer stem cells include, there's a list of them, long list, certain phytochemicals, including sulforaphane and these others, have been shown to interfere with these intrinsic pathways in vitro and in human xenograft mice. That's when you take a human tumor grafted on the back of a mouse. Gross experiment, but it's necessary in this field, leading to the elimination of cancer stem cells. Moreover, recent clinical trials have demonstrated the therapeutic efficiency efficacy of five phytochemicals alone 
or, and this is key, alone or in combination with modern cancer therapeutics in various types of cancers. Since cancer current cancer therapies fail to eradicate cancer stem cells, leading to cancer recurrence and progression, targeting them with these phytochemicals in combination with each other or conventional cytotoxic drugs and other novel therapies may offer a novel therapeutic strategy. So this is a review. Um, here's, here's another one which gets into some similar details, which I'd, again, like to read just for emphasis, um, if you don't mind. Not at all. I want to just point out that um, all of these studies are recent. Uh, the study that Jen is about to uh, talk about right now is from 2023, so brand new this year. And the other two studies were, we referenced were from 2020 and 2021, so all very new, um, new information that is coming to us that's important to know. Right. And so um, nested in that bunch of words that I just shared with you from from the 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 uh, paper called, yeah, the five big phytochemical paper was um, the fact that they may actually synergize existing treatments. So when you think about some of the nasty toxins that are used, I mean, they're, they're frankly, they're toxins that are used in treatment of cancer um, and, and all the side effects. And, and uh, many of you are unfortunately intimately familiar with them. Wouldn't it be nice if you could reduce the amount of those toxins that you were given and get a similar or comparable effect in terms of sure would getting, getting rid of the cancer yeah so that's part and parcel of what's being said here and in this this 2023 paper there's diagram showing again similar similar diagram of pathways that are affected and um among other things sulforaphane has shown um reducing or blocking the the stemness that means you know transition of a cell to becoming a stem cell, as well as invasion and migration, uh, and um, and the transition from so-called epithelial to mesenchymal, mesenchymal that's uh, related to metastasis. But um, yeah, again, similar verbiage here, but cancer stem cells exhibit a stemness phenotype characterized by self-renewal and differentiation capacities, which give these cells the ability to recapitulate the complex heterogeneity of primary tumors. In addition, they're intrinsically resistant to conventional therapies, including chemo and radiotherapy, that mainly target highly proliferative cells, as we talked about earlier. Cancer stem cells are usually in a low cycling quiescent cell state, which makes them almost unaffected by conventional cytotoxic agents. So, much like our somatic cells, the cells of the rest of their body, they're hanging out. They're keeping a low profile until they're called into action. So as it says here, additionally, cancer stem cell plasticity is one of the major challenges in the treatment of cancer since those cells can transit between a poorly to well-differentiated state and vice versa. <clears throat> so they can toggle back and forth. Yeah. And the fact that these can be treated with sulforaphane um, 
selectively is is pretty pretty potent medicine to to mix some metaphors here. Yeah, it's pretty amazing um, because I what I'm hearing you say are two things. One is that sulforaphane is working synergistically with um, uh, a lot of standard care chemotherapy agents. So it is, as you said, potentially providing the opportunity for us to have lower doses of chemotherapy, but it's also doing something that chemotherapy can't even do, which is to attack and kill cancer stem cells. And if we leave our cancer stem cells in our bodies, those cancer stem cells can reappear later as metastasis and recurrence. So it's a, that's a pretty big wow in my book. Yeah, which, I mean, those metastases and reoccurrences are what everybody who's been sent home and said you're cancer-free is worried about. Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, so in this same review, I, 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 stop me if you want. I'm trying to be respectful of time here, but... Um, <laughs> In the same 2023 paper by Coutinho et al., um, they give they give a table with some examples of some of the combinatorial effects of sulforaphane and other things on um, specifically cancer stem cell populations in most most cases here, um, uh, including combinations with um, doxorubis, doxorubicin um, with metformin. With quercetin, which is another phytochemical, not a not a drug, um, with uh, gemcitabine uh, and five fluorouracil, and and then again with with other phytochemicals, curcumin and dihydrocaffeic acid. These are all aimed at, uh, or almost all of them aimed at cancer stem cells. So. And this is really a this is a short list. This is a highly selected list. There is there's an enormous amount of literature on this uh, just in the past five years, I'd say. Okay. Um, well, so maybe I'd like to, sorry, what? And I just I can't keep thinking how exciting this is because uh, it, it to me it seems revolutionary that we can identify a cancer stem cell differently from a cancer cell and understand that these phytochemicals can actually kill the cancer stem cell when modern chemotherapies cannot. It's, it mind blows. It's a mind blowing thing for me. I, I, I mean, I, I think from a treatment perspective, I mean, so do you call that a, a preventive effect or a treatment effect? I'm not really sure, but from a treatment perspective, I think the fact that that you can combine, there's a lot of literature on this, that you can combine uh, various nasties uh, like gemcitabine, uh, doxorubicin with stem cell, with sulforaphane and get, um, you know, require a lower dose for a similar effect. <clears throat> I think that's pretty uh, phenomenal and really worth investigating. I think it's important to make the point that not all of this is even brand new. Some of this information has been around for many years. Um, this is from a dear friend of mine, Yushin Zhang, uh, a review in 20, in 2007. And he's got a whole section, it's a review on sulforaphane, on its ability to inhibit angiogenesis and metastasis. And he talks about you know, the fact that 
or they, Li Tang, another friend, um, talk about the fact that sulforaphane was shown to potently reduce in vitro formation of microcapillaries, suppress capillary-like tube formation on basement membrane, membrane matrix, and inhibit cell migration. Um, they weren't due to in inhibition of cell proliferation, but were associated, associated with regulation of all the uh, laundry list alphabet soup of factors uh, including VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, and, and, and on and on. And also they make the point that um, it was able to, sulforaphane was able to inhibit proliferation and tubular formation of human umbilical vein endothelial cells. And this is related to um, uh, inhibition and evasiveness of a human breast cancer cell line. Um, so, I mean, the these concepts have been around and people are uh, working on the working in this field. Uh, there aren't a lot of clinical trials on it. There are plenty of in vitro or test tube and animal um, studies, but um, anyway, I just want to whet your appetite for some of what can be found. Um, Excellent. And then I think uh, next time we speak, we'll do some deeper dives into, into some studies, uh, into some other studies uh, that have to do with breast cancer and different types of breast cancer, how it affects estrogen positive versus HER2 positive versus triple negative. Um, that would be great. Let's, I want to give you another example of some of the cool stuff that's happening. Again, this is old hat. This is old news. This was done by Paul Talley, my mentor, uh, and Hua Liu, who worked for me for many years um, at, at Johns Hopkins. Um, and this is in this, they were looking at a synergy between exemestane, which is an aromatase inhibitor widely used in breast cancer treatment, um, and it's, it's a synthetic steroid. It's commonly used uh, clinically to prevent delay progression of and treat breast cancer by inhibiting estrogen biosynthesis um, by an enzyme called aromatase. So hence, it's an aromatase inhibitor. Um, they, they found unexpectedly that exemestane, the drug, which I think is off patent now, it's probably generic and got various names, um, also has widespread protective activities unrelated to its estrogen blocking. Um, and they determined, they found and showed in this paper that it's potently anti-inflammatory and antioxidant and can protect against cancer development um, uh, in, in, in that way, uh, exploiting its anti-inflammatory activity. And then, and this is sort of the, the brass ring, then they found that, that those activities of exemestane were synergized by sulforaphane and some other some other cytoprotective phytochemicals. So again, suggesting a combinatorial strategy to reduce dose of nasties, um, yeah. to reduce dose of, of drugs that may have side effects we don't even know about and would rather not have to use as much of or perhaps use them for as long. Yeah, that's so, very exciting. I know there are some some people that um, have some uh, poor side effects with the aromatase inhibitors. Um, so that's exciting. And just the synergy being able to, you know, have more effect, you know, be more effective. Uh, I'll take that too. Indeed.
but I'd like to just share a little bit of what's happening in the literature. The tales aren't important, but um, this is, I've done database searches using a database called Scopus, which is a proprietary database, but I prefer it to using PubMed, which is the sort of readily available one for most people. Um, it's actually more comprehensive, but just using the words glucoraphanin or sulforaphane, I mean, you can see the logarithmic or exponential increase in number of peer-reviewed public scientific publications. I did this search actually a year ago. So, I mean, you see up to certainly 2021, um, these results, and this is just a half year's result. Um, when you then take the studies and, uh, and split them into what the disease indication was. Um, uh, there's a long list here for those of you who are just listening. It goes from schizophrenia to macular degeneration to Friedrich's ataxia, but at the very top uh, are the, is cancer. So it is being studied uh, very widely for its cancer preventive and, and as we discussed, treatment effects. Um, and in uh, with colleagues uh, three or four years ago, three years ago, um, we've looked at the clinical studies done with glucoraphanin or sulforaphane. This is on human subjects. We estimated that there were over a hundred thousand individual doses that had been delivered. A dose being either eating broccoli sprouts or a supplement containing glucoraphanin, or really a homemade broccoli sprout or seed uh, extract that I made at large scale. Um, and what is, shouldn't be very surprising is that most of these studies have been done on healthy people, um, some on those with liver cancer, other cancers, metabolic disorders, H. pylori infection, et cetera. So out of the list was up to 75 studies three or four years ago. It's up well over 100 studies now. But, uh, you know, less than 10 studies are done on people with cancer, um, which may sound contradictory to some of the things we were just saying. But, but these are clinical trials in which real people with real cancers are given, in this case, sulforaphane. And so doing cancer prevention studies, which is what I think the one of the big brass rings is with sulforaphane and glucoraphanin. Cancer prevention studies are almost impossible to do in a healthy population. Um, so you wind up looking at biomarkers. And biomarkers are, you know, all of the genes and the proteins that are upregulated or downregulated or blocked the metabolic pathways that are, in the case of cancer, known to be associated with an increased risk of, of particular cancers. And so this is uh, another graphic here uh, for those of you not seeing it, just talking about the types of biomarkers that are, that are evaluated in these studies. Um, so, I mean, I think the take home from this is that safety is no-brainer. It, it is safe. You know, people have looked at uptake, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion, and all sorts of biomarkers, um, uh, confirming all of the things that have been shown in in vitro and animal studies. 
Um, and, you know, we've done a number of studies in China and in the U.S. looking at, for example, liver cancer risk, but you you don't use cancer, development of cancer as an endpoint. Epidemiologic studies do where they look back and see what someone's been eating for many years and say, oh yeah, those people were at higher risk for liver cancer, for example. What we did is uh, give people that were granted at high risk for liver cancer based on where they lived uh, a, a broccoli sprout tea um, and we looked, we monitored their, their blood and their urine for biomarkers that are indicative of the sorts of nasty things that happen when you're on the road to liver cancer, uh, aflatoxin, a, a frank toxin, uh, uh, binds to DNA. It's a terrible carcinogen. And we looked at how much of that was flushed from the body when they got broccoli spread out tea. So those are the kinds of studies you wind up doing. In doing this search of just sulforaphane in cancer, um, I, I wanted to see what had what had happened in the literature since these reviews that we did three or four years ago, because so much has happened. And um, I've created a spreadsheet that I'm going to give to Mary Beth to distribute to anybody who'd like to have it. And this is just in the last three, three, three-ish years, three and a half years, there have been 297 uh, studies in which sulforaphane and cancer appear in the title of the paper. <clears throat> and I've actually gone through the titles and highlighted some of the mechanisms just in red, just so it's a little easier to see what might be going on in the paper. Mm -hmm. And to the right of the, uh, on the spreadsheet will be a link to the DOI or the document, uh, whatever, the identifier that will let you get that paper online. Some of, most of the papers are open access, meaning anybody can get them. And if you can't, uh, Mary Beth or I could help you get them, I'm sure. And once we've gotten them once, we can share them with anybody as long as it's not, for, you're not making a profit off use of those papers, as long as it's for research only. So, so that's I'll exciting. Share. So what I'm seeing here, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, okay, even though we were talking about some studies that came out as early as this year on cancer stem cells uh, and the benefits of sulforaphane on eradicating cancer stem cells, that the work on this has been done for years, uh, going back to your work with Paul and publishing that he something research he's published way back in 2007. And now when we look at even the last couple of years, the last two, three years, we see as many as 200 plus studies uh, that are all being published, uh, research papers that are all being published. Um, that we have access to to look up and determine maybe there is a study that is particularly relevant to my cancer. So, for example, um, when I was looking at, at sulforaphane in cancer, I found a study that said that had been looked at sulforaphane's impact on HER2 positive breast cancer, which was my diagnosis. Um, when tratuzumab, which is the drug that I'm currently on, stops working. <laughs> it was that specific. So, uh, and the findings of that we'll talk about in the in the next time that we can get together. But the 
the headline of it was the sulforaphane started to have strong effects that um, that occurred to help kill cancer cells after the trastuzumab stopped working. So I use that as just a simple example to encourage people to look at the database and to, to look at this spreadsheet that you've put together to identify studies that may involve the particular drugs or the particular situation that you find yourself in as a cancer patient. Yep, absolutely. And, and you know, we will share this with the, with the uh, sort of understanding that if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you've gotten this far in it, you clearly care somewhat about diving into the weeds um, and this will enable you to do, to, to, to do that yourself. I mean, if you're a non-scientist, you can still usually get a lot of interesting information out of just reading the abstract or the introduction to a paper. Skip the methods, don't worry about that. That gets really hairy. And mm -hmm. skip most of the graphics probably because sometimes they can be very hard for a non-scientist to grasp. But frequently, it's worth calling the paper up just to see what you can get out of it. Yeah. And Mary Beth, I misspoke. Actually, the 297 papers was for sulforaphane and cancer in the title forever. Okay. But as you can see here, there, there are something like 40 or, or so papers just in the past three years. I can do two other searches that may be of interest to your um, listeners. One is to look for sulforaphane and uh, cancer in the title and keywords. That will bring in a lot more papers and I won't promise you I'll screen through them all, um, but there'll be a lot that don't really relate. Um, and the other search, which probably would be worthwhile is to include review articles because it's the review articles or, or just to isolate review articles because it's those that probably are most approachable by by the lay public because they won't have a lot of uh, they won't have a lot of gels and graphs that are can be hard to interpret by yeah so I can do yeah. both of those that would be um, great um, and maybe what we could do is to um, I think we've already decided now that our next topic is going to be uh, sulforaphane and cancer and uh, the research that has been done on it. Um, so we can provide some of those additional research um, um, tools and, and um, at the end of our, our next one as well. So yes, we're going to keep sharing information with all of the listeners uh, and try to give them as much detail as possible. That's, we're very grateful for all your work, Jed. That's great. I do want to just kind of do a wrap-up summary with you of what we've talked about because we've covered a lot of ground today. And so uh, if you have a minute, well, let's just uh, reiterate a couple of key points for the listeners so that they can, um, you know, so that they can better remember uh, the, the key points. So uh, chime in as I, as I run through a few things. Uh, number one was that sulforaphane is a powerful phytochemical and that there has been years of research done on this and, uh, and there are lots of research studies in particular on sulforaphane and cancer that can be referenced. Um, and to get an efficacious amount of sulforaphane for our bodies, 
we need to be looking at a dose or a serving size, if we will, if you will, of about a cup a day or every other day in order to really keep the level of sulforaphane in our system to keep the upregulation of the right enzymes that will work for us, work hard for us to fight cancer. Um, we're looking at, yeah, about a cup every day or every other day, and that that would maintain those nice high levels that we would need to see. Um, so we covered, covered that. And then we also talked a little bit about, um, about safety and um, have how the mechanism of action for sulforaphane and just understanding um, has there been research and enough research and enough look, people looking at it in different ways, especially as regards to cancer, in order to understand if it's safe for patients to consider. And I think we ended up in a place where we were feeling pretty good about where that where that stands. Do you want to just maybe comment on that and see what fill in the gaps of what I missed? Yeah, so I don't think you missed anything. I think um, it, it, is, it is extremely safe. There's no question about that. People have been eating broccoli for, well, not, not millennia because it was only really developed in, in the Mediterranean uh, as, a, uh, as a food fairly recently, hundred or so years ago. But yeah, people have been eating cruciferous vegetables and certainly broccoli for a long time. Um, uh, it, it is perfectly safe. The levels that we're talking about in supplements, levels of glucoraphanin are certainly within the order of magnitude of what people who eat broccoli can get. So that's not an issue. Um, it appears to be incredibly effective and as we said a number of conditions um and and not harmful in those same conditions um there's um a dose effect of everything right so you can get too little or too much of everything including salt including water um so clearly you don't want to eat a pound of concentrated glucoraphanin uh, but and we should can and should talk about dose uh, again, or you know we can talk about it again in another another conversation. I think the only concern, and we'll have to save this to next time, is that um, since the NRF2 pathway does enhance cell survival, um, we do have to think carefully if for people who have a frank cancer, who have a tumor, have uh, are 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 not deemed cancer-free, is it wise to really crank up the dose of glucoraphanin um, with the idea that, you know, or the question, could it protect the cancer cells from being destroyed preferentially? And I think most of the evidence is no, that's not the case, especially with a pharmacologic dosing. You get a dose, you upregulate some enzymes, and then the dose drops. With, as I'll show you next time, with a genetic upregulation, and there in, in animal studies, there are ways to make an animal have a high level of NRF2 activity, flat, you know, high and flat forever, constantly. Um, then there are some cancer-related risks. Um, 
but as a practical matter, that doesn't happen in people. So we should talk about that, but that's the only that's the only concern. And again, if you're undergoing chemo or radiation therapy, you're going to be talking with your doctor about everything you're doing and your habits. And um, you know, there there are some subtleties and there will be some strong opinions on whether you should or shouldn't be taking, you know, eating a lot of broccoli sprouts or taking a supplement at, at that point. Um and, and I don't think there's a good answer. But anyway, a long-winded answer, but no, that's great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming today. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation and uh, having you lead us as uh, you have the world with your expertise at Johns Hopkins and now at your um, new appointments at George Mason and uh, Maine University in their medical and public health um, areas. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. Well, Mary Beth, thank you for having me, and it's been enjoyable. And um, I'm sorry I lost my voice in the middle, but um, <laughs> next time we talk, we'll have to make it at six in the morning before I have a chance to lose my voice to a day's worth of talking. We'll so. do that. We'll do that. Thanks, Jed. Thanks very much. Bye bye. And now, an important announcement all the information that was provided today was for educational purposes only. I'm a patient, just like you. I am not a licensed or accredited physician, therapist, or clinical researcher. All information provided is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, therapist, nutritionist, or any other qualified healthcare professional.